Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Today's story is set in Chicago, Illinois, and it recounts a brutal double homicide, the murder of a black woman and her unborn child. On November 10th, 2007, after Teresa Marie Bunn tells her family that she's going shopping in Chicago but doesn't return, the family of Teresa begins to suspect the worst. During the investigation, police, Chicago residents, and the family conjure multiple theories for her murder that allude to mental health issues, harassment complaints, and even a potential serial killer roaming the city streets. I'm your host, Nisa. Welcome to the Lost Crimes Library. Let's explore the tragic murder of Teresa Bunn. It's Monday evening, November 10th, 2007, to be exact. And 21-year-old Teresa Bunn is getting ready to go do some shopping in the city of Chicago. Teresa is a fairly new graduate from Englewood High School, and she's just starting her adult life. Teresa is expecting her first child. She's around eight months pregnant, and she has already picked out the name of her son. She decided on Michael Pierre Terry Bunn. It was a month away from Christmas, and her baby would soon arrive. So... Maybe she wanted to go get some last-minute shopping done. On her way out the door, she tells her family she's heading off to the mall and that she'll be back soon. It's unclear where she was going exactly, but she planned to shop either in Chicago or Evergreen Park. From my research, it's unknown what she intended to shop for. However, one thing is clear. She left with the intention to return home. But after being gone for a few hours past the time she is expected home, her family begins to worry. Teresa is an outgoing woman. She loves to listen to music and she's not afraid to make new friends. She's that friend who is always there to pick up your spirits when you're down. So perhaps she met a new friend and lost track of time, or maybe she ran into an old friend and she made new plans. As time passes, the worry mounts. There are many things that spark concern from Teresa's mother, Rosemary Williams. First, when Teresa doesn't return home, her mother starts to fear that Teresa's mental condition is the reason she's missing. Whatever this mental condition is, maybe it makes her easily confused or disoriented, and that's why she isn't home yet. In all of the articles I read, Teresa's mental condition is never disclosed. But as hours and days pass, the worry grows because rumors start spreading that the police have found the charred remains of a woman in Washington Park. 
Washington Park is located on the south side of Chicago. We know that Teresa had plans to shop either in the city of Chicago, which is an incredibly vague location, or in Evergreen Park, which is located 11 miles south of Washington Park in Worth Township, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. Given that Teresa may have been shopping somewhere in the city that day, it becomes an even greater possibility that Teresa is this woman bound in Washington Park. And this is what Teresa's family fears the most. On November 12, 2007, around 11.45 p.m., a body was found inside a dumpster on the 6100 block of South Prairie Avenue, which is located southwest of Washington Park. Police are shocked by what they find at the scene. The body is in gruesome condition. The victim's body has been charred and mutilated. Because of the horrible condition of the body, police must rely on dental records for identification. When the dental records come back, it reveals that the body is of Teresa Bunn. Upon discovering this, police notify the family of Teresa, who have been waiting and hoping that Teresa was somewhere out there alive. In a heartbreaking Chicago Tribune article, Teresa's family was said to have erupted in grief as soon as they heard the news. Teresa's sister even cried outside of the home as neighbors on nearby porches shook their heads in disbelief. Not only did her family lose Teresa, but they also lost Teresa's unborn child. I can't imagine the complexity and depth of grieving the loss of a life cut short and a life not yet lived. The Chicago Police Department doesn't have any suspects yet, so they begin the investigation by conducting interviews with those who had a close relationship with Teresa. But the investigation gets interrupted when CPD is called to another crime scene around 1 a.m. on November 14, 2007, on the 800 block of East 50th Street, two miles away from the scene where Teresa was found. When police arrive at this second crime scene, they notice that it's a violent crime similar to the one a couple of days prior. The manner of deaths and the disposal of the bodies are both similar. When the Chicago Fire Department responds to reports of flames from a dumpster behind Revis Elementary School on East 50th Street in Kenwood, what the first responders find is horrifying. The Chicago Police Department discovered that this second body was strangled and set ablaze. The victim was a female, close to 30 years old, and her identity is unknown at the time. During the investigation, police discovered that this unidentified woman was black and she was wearing a blue shirt with a safety pin under a multicolored shirt, a Martha Stewart blue or green fleece sweatshirt, and blue jeans. With this description released to the public, tips start coming in about this unidentified murder victim tips that could lead the police to her possible identity. Police find evidence at both crime scenes. The evidence is sent to the Illinois State Police Crime Lab for testing. The CPD doesn't share with the press what type of evidence they are collecting and testing, but according to rblackgirls.com, the DNA in those cases don't match with other cases or anyone in their database. What's interesting is that although these two crimes seem relatively similar, there is at least one major factor that may convince police that these cases aren't connected. You see, in Teresa's case, an accelerant was used to burn her body. However, in the second case, no accelerant was found on the victim's body. Eventually, police are able to identify the second victim. Her name is Hazel Lewis. She was 52, a mother, a fiancé, and a grandmother. With the discovery of a second murder victim, all within two days, Police try to calm the city and hush rumors and fears, 
of a potential serial killer on the loose. Police return back to the investigation of Teresa Bunn. They begin looking at her past and current relationships, searching for anything that could hint at a motive for such a brutal crime. It turns out that Teresa had a rocky relationship in her past. According to court documents, Teresa had a tumultuous relationship with the father of her unborn child. According to these documents, this man filed an order of protection against Teresa in August of 2007. Apparently, Teresa was making threatening phone calls to this man, claiming that he was the father of her child. The man alleges in these court documents that Teresa even threatened to have him beaten. According to this man, Teresa and he had been involved, but they never had sexual intercourse. On September 12, 2007, Teresa was arrested on charges that she violated the protection order by going to the man's house. And 12 days later, Teresa responded to this man's complaint with a letter that made claims that this man and his mother were both stalking and harassing Teresa because she was pregnant with his baby. In this letter, she wrote, quote, I want them to leave me alone. They are stressing me out. They are trying to make me lose this baby, end quote. That letter says a lot. This letter reveals, at the very least, a stressful relationship between Teresa and this man. If the allegations that this man and his mother are true, then it seems like this man or maybe even his mother should be considered suspects. This relationship between Teresa and this man seems like proof that she had a stormy relationship with someone who had the motive to kill her. But if we are going with the theory that Teresa's murder and Hazel's murder are connected, then that must take this man off the list of suspects, right? Or at least make him seem less likely to be the murderer, since the three of them don't seem connected in any way. With now two murders within 48 hours, police feel the pressure to catch the killer or killers responsible. They begin canvassing the neighborhoods where the bodies were found. But to some Chicago residents, the police aren't doing enough. Community activists begin demanding a stronger police presence and the answers for these two mysterious murders. In an attempt to quiet the city and soothe concerns, Alderman Tony Preckwinkle expresses to the public that although the murders are disturbing, it is too soon to jump to conclusions and that more details need to be uncovered. It's a week after Teresa and Hazel's murders, and the Chicago police still have not identified any suspects. This doesn't necessarily mean they have no suspects, because it is possible that at this point, they find it in the best interest of the case to remain quiet about any suspects that they may have in mind. However, some believe that the CPD isn't working the case at all, because over the course of a decade, there would be more homicides, but still no answers. It's a decade later, and the Chicago Police Department is no closer to solving the case. Meanwhile, since the murder of Teresa, speculation of an unknown serial killer arises. You see, according to the Murder Accountability Project, Teresa Bunn and Hazel Lewis were only two out of 51 murdered women in Chicago, women who were murdered in the span of 20 years. It was rumored that there had been a serial killer hunting Chicago women since 2001. According to the Murder Accountability Project's report, most of the 51 victims in Chicago were found in alleyways, garbage cans, and empty lots or abandoned buildings. Also, many of the cases involved sex workers and appeared to be sexually motivated crimes, and many of the women were African-American. The founder of the Murder Accountability Project, 
Thomas Hargrove says, quote, It actually stretches credulity to imagine that these 51 women were killed by 51 separate men, end quote. And I'm inclined to agree. What are the chances that 51 women would be killed by different men in very similar manners, all within the span of 20 years? Thomas Hargrove insists that the case of these murdered women obviously points to a serial killer. He says, quote, If you look at these, at the nature of the cases, it's classic. It couldn't be more serial looking. It's got every element for a classic pattern, end quote. So, what are the classic elements of a serial killer? The concept of serial killers was determined by FBI agents John Douglas and the late Robert Ressler after conducting chilling interviews with convicted serial predators. Their research made FBI profiling a credible form of investigating. Profilers like Douglas and Ressler use factors like whether the victim's body has been positioned or posed by the killer, whether sexual violence was enacted before or after the victim, and whether cannibalism or mutation was practiced on the victim's body. These factors distinguish where a serial killer falls in two categories, either an organized offender or a disorganized offender. This classification system can be credited to former profiler Roy Hazelwood. According to Hazelwood, organized offenders premeditate and carefully plan out their crimes. This means little evidence is usually found at the scene. These killers are antisocial, often psychopathic, but they know right from wrong, they're not insane, and they show no remorse. Historically, these killers tend to have above-average intelligence. They can be married, attractive, employed, orderly, and controlled. They have some degree of social grace and can typically seduce their victims into being captured. Think Ted Bundy. When it comes to organized offenders, there are typically three separate crime scenes. One is where the victim was approached by the killer. Two is where the victim was killed. And three is where the victim's body was disposed of. Unlike organized offenders, disorganized offenders do not plan for their crimes, and they typically leave behind evidence, like fingerprints or blood at the crime scene. In addition, there's no inclination to move or hide the corpse. These types of criminals may be young, under the influence of drugs or alcohol, or mentally ill. Disorganized offenders often come from an unstable or dysfunctional family, and they may have been abused, either physically or sexually. Disorganized offenders will often use sudden and overwhelming force to assault the victim. Think Jack the Ripper. What's interesting is that a crime scene of a serial killer can occasionally show signs of both an organized offender and a disorganized offender. This may occur if there are multiple offenders of different personality types involved in the murder, or it can occur when a serial killer is undergoing a psychological transformation throughout their killing career. Based on the few circumstances of Teresa's case that we know about, it may be possible that this unknown serial killer is a mix of organized and disorganized. What's interesting is that at the crime scene, evidence was left behind which points to a disorganized killer. However, the placement of Teresa's body as well as the other 51 women may point to an organized killer. Remember, these 51 women were placed in hidden or rarely traveled locations like dumpsters or alleys or abandoned buildings. If the killer was a disorganized offender, they most likely wouldn't bother hiding the bodies. And the manner of death is interesting too. Teresa was strangled and then burned. The fact that she was strangled doesn't really point to premeditation or not. However, the use of accelerant could point to premeditation if the accelerant was gasoline. 
Most people aren't walking around with an accelerant readily available. But what if the accelerant was alcohol? Couldn't this also point back to a disorganized crime, where the killer is more likely to abuse alcohol or other addictive substances? In 2019, Chicago Police Superintendent Eddie Johnson suggested that there was no evidence that a serial killer exists, but that they would begin a review. Why are the police so sure that the deaths of these 51 women are not victims of a serial killer? Let's look at the M.O. and the signature of a serial killer. An M.O., or modus operandi, is the killer's means of control over the victim at the crime scene. It's what the killer must do to commit the crime. For example, a killer may first need to tie up the victim before they can kill them. The M.O. is mutable. It may not be the same as it was last week or last year, because a serial killer may need to alter or refine their M.O. in order to adjust for the circumstances. On the other hand, the signature is not necessary to commit the crime. Instead, it serves the emotional and psychological needs of the serial killer. The signature reflects a deep fantasy that the killer has about his victims. The fundamental core of the signature is that it remains the same. The serial killer, Jack the Ripper, had a signature of extensive hacking and mutilation of his victims' bodies. When it comes to Teresa's murder and the subsequent murders of the 50 other women, I find it hard to believe that at least some of these victims weren't the victims of a serial killer. If you consider the M.O., how the killer controls their victims, there could be a significant connection between the cases. Articles about Teresa Bunn's and Hazel Lewis's cases are scarce, and they only provide so much information about the murders. But from my research, what we do know is that aside from the fact that Teresa and Hazel were both strangled and their bodies were both burned, their bodies were both found in dumpsters and poorly lit areas. Is it possible that the hypothetical serial killer uses dark or poorly lit areas to commit their crimes? Does the serial killer lure in sex workers into the alley and then kill them there? Could this be the hypothetical serial killer's M.O.? Or did the killer murder these women at a different place and then dump their bodies elsewhere? If you consider the signature of Teresa and Hazel's murders, I think it is important to look at the burning of the bodies. From my understanding, this may be the hypothetical serial killer's signature. Strangling the women is the actual act of murder. However, the burning of their bodies is not necessary to kill them, which means this could be a deep fantasy of the hypothetical serial killer. And as far as we know, this is a consistent factor in Teresa and Hazel's case, and could be a consistent factor for those other 49 women. Does the killer burn their bodies because they need to fulfill some twisted fantasy? Or do they burn the bodies for practical reasons, to get rid of any evidence connecting them to the crime? The murder of Teresa Bunn holds many mysteries. Who killed her? Was it the alleged father of her unborn child? Was it a serial killer lurking in the shadows of Chicago alleyways? Is her case connected to Hazel Lewis and the many murders that took place before and after her murder? Despite the minimal facts released by the Chicago Police Department, I can see why Chicago residents believe that Teresa was one of many black women killed by the hands of a serial killer. The cases are just so similar, similar manners of death and manners of disposal. Like Thomas Hargrove said, I find it hard to believe that 51 women were murdered by 51 different men. To me, it's more likely that these women were killed by the same perpetrator. How do you explain the fact that at least 51 women were killed and disposed of in incredibly similar manners within 20 years? 
For Teresa's family, closure has been elusive for over 13 years. They say that the only thing that could come close to giving them a semblance of closure would be the arrest and incarceration of the monster that murdered Teresa and her unborn son. There are so many things that are devastating about Teresa's case. The way she died, the condition in which her body was found, and of course, the fact that her life and the life of her baby were snatched so viciously and prematurely. What's also devastating is that it took the murder of 51 women for Chicago police to start investigating these murders from all angles. Did police not take these cases seriously because some victims were sex workers? Did police not take these cases seriously because most of the victims were black women? If 51 white women were murdered in Chicago, it would be a national crisis. All theories would have been explored and people would be demanding answers. These 51 women were mothers, sisters, daughters, human beings that were victimized by a killer, but also by the system. If you have any information regarding the murder of Teresa Bunn and her unborn child, please contact the Chicago Police Department at 312-746-6000. If you'd like to listen to more episodes of the Lost Crimes Library, you can find it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at the LCL Pod for any podcast updates. Remember, sharing is caring, so make sure to share this podcast and also leave a review. It helps a lot. And don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss any new episodes. This episode was written and hosted by Nisa Henderson, and it was produced by Channing Tapp and Nisa Henderson.